Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello, I'm David Kern. And I'm Heidi White. And I'm Tim McIntosh. And you are listening to Close Reads, a podcast for the incurable reader. We are here to discuss Ernest Hemingway's novel, The Sun Also Rises. We're going to discuss the final chapters. And I have a question for you, Tim McIntosh, as we get started. Yes, I'm ready. What's the best bottle of wine you've ever had? I, I don't know. I know the best medium <laughs> bottle of wine that you can buy off the shelf, but I don't know about the best bottle of wine I've ever had. Go with that. We want to hear that. Have you ever been to somebody's house or a party or something and they brought a really nice bottle? Do you know? Do you know if you have? I'm sure that I have. I just don't remember what the label said. On a scale of one to 10, how interested in wine are you? I'd say six. Okay. Yeah. What's your favorite grape? No, okay, we're now <laughs> past my ability. <laughs> Do you know to answer these questions, David? Like, could you answer these questions for yourself? Hey, David. Yeah, I can answer What's them for the my, best myself, bottle but... of wine you've ever had? <laughs> well, the best bottle of wine I've ever had is the same bottle of wine that uh, Jake I'm Barnes. Yeah, oh, the, you're the Jake Barnes drank in this section, which is why I asked the question. Because there is, there's this moment where Jake Barnes famously goes off by himself as the Everyone's left him and he's in what, San Sebastian? Mm-hmm. No, yeah. San Sebastian. Yeah. And he's by himself and he says, How great a companion a good bottle of wine is. And he's drinking a mm-hmm. Chateau Margaux. Now, I don't know what variety, what year of Chateau, Chateau Margaux Jake Barnes was drinking in 1920, but it was probably pretty good. Nowadays, Chateau Margaux is like extremely collectible. Heidi, what's the best bottle of wine? Like, what would you say is the best bottle you've ever drank, you've ever had? Um, so I think my favorite bottle of wine... You've been to France, so maybe this doesn't. This isn't fair. <laughs> we've had some good wine. I, I like wine a little bit. Um, Scale of one to ten. <laughs> I, I, definitely the Chateau Margaux that we had with you and Bethany was just stellar. Like, probably my favorite. But I've also had... When we did our Bordeaux trip, we had a Petrus, which is the rarest yeah. wine in the world. And that and was It's locked like a $3,200 bottle. <laughs> it was what? magnificent. Like by law, it has to be, yeah. Um, I mean, I wasn't going to say that on the air because that... I know, I was, said it for you. Yeah. <laughs> um, but we did have a, a bottle of that with dinner on our anniversary trip and it was... Magnificent, but I think I yeah, actually I mean, prefer... Even Heidi doesn't drink that every day. Not, I mean, it's not... <laughs> yeah, it's just Tuesday, so maybe tomorrow. Right, right. Yeah. Right, yeah, right. Um, the, yeah, that was probably the best bottle objectively that I've ever had, but my favorite, mm. I think, was the Chateau Margaux. But I do prefer Saint-Amillon, and I could start talking... I'm not going to... I'm done. I'm done talking about... <laughs> The wine I like because that's going to dominate another podcast. We'll do that in another podcast. There you go. I think we got to talk wine for a couple minutes on a 
on a podcast about The Sun Also Rises because uh, it's a Agreed. book that takes wine seriously. So I was thinking about this question, though, and I think it's an interesting entryway into the end of the book. I've got all kinds of questions about how this book is structured, mm-hmm. how it ends, questions of denouement, and all kinds of questions like that, the kind of things we normally talk about. <clears throat> but do you think... Oh, I got to turn off. I got to turn the volume down on my computer so that Slack doesn't ding at you guys the whole uh-huh. time we're talking. Okay, so when you're... Wait, wait, the way this book treats food and wine and partying and those sorts of things, in a way, it takes it very seriously. Yeah. And the characters take it very seriously. And then on the other hand, I can't figure it out if it actually maybe takes it a little bit uh, lightly. And so I was trying to figure that out. Is this a, like, does Jake Barnes himself take wine? Does he, does, he, does he take it seriously or do you think he takes it I guess lightly. That's the only phrase I can think of. Tim, I'd love to go back to you on this one. Because um, he clearly, like, he, he talks about wine as his great companion, right? Um, he talk, he's, he's very contemplative about these experiences that he's having and how and he talks about beauty. And he talks about, um, you know, he talks about beverages and food like their nature or human beings or something like that. And yet, in a way, it's, they kind of, all these people are kind of abusing these beverages and the and the wood the the food that they're that they're talking about because they're they're a little down, right? Yeah. So I've been thinking, I don't know why this question kind of consumed my reading of these last few chapters, but maybe you can help me sort this out because I don't have an answer. I don't I think he doesn't take them very seriously. If I understand what you mean. Like like is he a connoisseur? Is he devoting his attention to wine the way that he devoted his attention to the bulls and the bullfighters and the bullfighting ring? I think the answer is no. I think he drinks to get drunk. And um, so it, it might sound a little bit contradictory that he's drinking this really nice wine, but I wonder if it's just kind of he's feeling the party's over, Brett's with a bullfighter, I've lost. Hey, Let's just spend money at random because what do we got to lose? Mm-hmm. It tastes a little bit better, but I don't think he appreciates it like the way a connoisseur appreciates it. So he's not an aficionado. You don't, you don't think an, he views yeah. himself as an aficionado about wine as he does about bullfighting. Right. Heidi, what about you? Do you how, how do you read his, his uh, appreciation for, for the... this particular variety of the finer things. (laughs) I'm a strong disagree with Tim on this one. Um, I think that you said something important, Tim, in, in your answer to David, which is that, that he's paying attention uh, to food and to wine. And I, I do think that he loves it very much. Um, And I, and it, actually, it was Hemingway's description of food and wine that started me on my own particular journey of paying attention to food because I just wasn't raised like that. Um, mm-hmm. 
at all. Did it move the? What was it? An, uh, was it a movable feast? A movable feast. Yes, it Did was. Did that impact that? Yes, hugely. That the idea of travel and enjoying, and just paying attention, like lingering over a meal and describing it with words, like the connection between description and the experience, the sens- sensory experience itself, was like very compelling to me in reading Hemingway. And I wanted Hmm. to practice that. I like would write down, I would go home and write down (laughs) what I ate and how I felt and like was playing with words. Yeah. Well, the, the descriptive, the, like the, the adjectives he uses to describe the experience of enjoying a meal and drinking a good bottle of wine or that even like the temperature that always stuck with me, uh, like the cold, how cold the wine was and how it beaded on the, on the bottle and um, the tang or the feel of the oysters on his tongue. There's a description of him eating oysters and drinking white wine uh, in a movable feast that I can remember. That was the one. That was the one. And I'd never Mm. had oysters and I'd never had white wine at the time that I read it. I was like, he pays attention. Now I don't, I do agree with Tim that he's not an aficionado uh, in like the way a chef would be or a food writer uh, or a critic. Um, He doesn't seem to know that much about food or the ingredients or how it's prepared. Um, But so that's not aficionado level, but the idea- He's not talking about like terroir. (laughs) Yes, exactly. He's not talking about terroir, but he's- he he is paying attention and it does give him pleasure and it's like a simple pleasure like a child would have that he's not ashamed of that seems to be a healing force in his life and a centering force in his life and and I find that hmm. compelling and true about food. Hmm. So the, you talk, there's this idea of the centering force and then there's also this idea that it's clear that this whole group of people are is gluttons. sort of yeah yeah those gluttony i think that's a word mm-hmm. there's this there's like a i think what we now might call self-medicating or mm-hmm. you know medicating with booze and and food and pleasure and things like that um there's a sort of um unhealthy that they're unhealthy they're they're they're, they're down they're sad right and so right. they turn to these things to forget the things they've experienced or the things they have to go back to so is hemingway is our the so so I guess what I'm trying to what I'm wondering is is the book itself suggesting making any commentary on on their approach like is yeah. you know we, we he is presenting their actions in a very specific way and I think that what a lot of people have trouble with is that any kind of commentary that Hemingway makes about this sort of lifestyle is perhaps not direct enough, right? Like he doesn't come, the book doesn't necessarily come right out and condone it. Terrible things, you know, they don't necessarily bear the repercussions of their behavior in ways that are obvious. And so at the end of the book, you're kind of like, well, wait, what was the point of all this? They went away, they partied, they watched the bulls, they watched a guy die in the streets. They... Brett went off with a guy and then ended up sad. And so at the end of it, we're left with people who they, they're not much different than they were at the beginning, which is, can be a little bit of a dissonance as a reader. So then what does the, what, I mean, what do you, what commentary do you think the book is offering Heidi on the lifestyle and on these things that, that they uh, are self-medicating with, right. but that Hemingway himself seems to see and to find great beauty in. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's such a good question. There is a contrast between the way that Jake, particularly, I mean, all of them get drunk and overdrink and overeat and um, overindulge, and many of the pleasures of the flesh that are given to us as gifts. And and I think there's such a contrast between uh, the way that they eat and drink when they're at the fiesta versus the way Jake and Bill and his male friends eat and drink when they're out in nature on their own without the presence of Brett and uh, the disordering Mm. force in the book. And they all love her. And yet she creates this profound disorder in each of them individually and amongst them in the relationships between them. Uh, And, and I think that for Hemingway, it's less of a comment on Brett who he seems to have profound empathy for the same way that readers who are paying attention probably should. Uh, She's not the bad guy. She's not the villain, but there's, there is this sense of this disordered masculinity is further disordered by the presence of a strong woman and then out. But when they're out in nature, that's when the descriptions kick in of like the, the simplicity of, you know, fishing and eating the fish that you caught with a wine that was chilled in the river um, or how he goes out swimming by himself when, uh, when he's in Saint yeah. Sebastian, and then he comes back and he drinks the Chateau Margot uh, and has a good meal and talks about the simplicity of of being in France and all you have to do is spend money to make friends, right? And so uh, there's there's you a contrast he, when, he's, when they're by themselves, when they're away from Brett, yeah. it's more contemplative, more poetic, more more consumed with aesthetics, more simple, yes, and exactly, and that there's an and and that they enjoy things more keenly through their senses, mm. which the the book isn't saying, I don't think that Hemingway is saying that that's the only way to enjoy things, but the book is contemplating what it's like to live under the sun, a life lived without the things of the spirit. And in which case, the simplicity of going swimming in nature and letting this the water dry on your skin and enjoying a good wine and having a good meal uh, and quietness surrounded by happy people, which is how he describes the, com- the, the people around him in San Sebastian, uh, is that's the best you can do. And so it's worthy to pay attention to. Whereas where they're, when they're in the contrast with them at the Fiesta in Pamplona, is there's, it's getting more and more disordered. They're enjoying their food and their drink less and less the more they partake of it. Um, and so the, the food and drink is a focus of conversation and of attention while they're at the Fiesta, but it gets disordered along with everything else. Hmm. Hmm. Tim, you, it looked like you were going to say something or you were deep well, in thought. I think I read these last chapters differently. I don't, the way that I read them is that when the fiesta ends and when Brett leaves with the bullfighter and everyone heads their separate ways, we see Jake, yes, like kind of return to like this simple life. But I think it's because, um, he's kind of, he's crash landing. I think all of the energy in his life associated with Brett, associated with finally like the temporary fix of this party, even the antagonism with Robert Cohn, which is a, like a mild form of enjoyment because it's an amusement. It's now all gone. And it, it feels to me like this part of the book just feels so profoundly sad and I don't get any 
satisfaction by a return to simplicity hmm. like I experienced when I read, uh, when we were on the river with Bill. I, it just feels to me like, man, we are, this is, this is, um, it feels sad to you, his, his interlude Oof. in San Sebastian. Yeah. Do you think he's profoundly sad? Do you think he's recovering? Is it a healing place for him or is he just wallowing? How do you like what happens to him there then? That's a good question. I mean, I think he's recovering in that he's like, he should be letting the alcohol drain from his body, you know? Um, (laughs) And I think he's not been sleeping. So I think in that way, he's, he's probably recovering, but I think he's just, yeah, I think it's more, Wallowing. I, I associate wallowing with self-pity, and mm-hmm. I don't know that there's a lot of self-pity here in Jake. He seems to really pride himself in continuing to move forward, even when things are not as he wishes them to be. But I think it's a, it's a depressive state that he might be doing some enjoyable things, swimming, eating good food, drinking good wine. But I think all of the all of the pleasure of them has kind of, yeah, it's promiseless. You know, it's interesting because for me, the section is about contrast and like absence, yeah. both positively and negatively. I would, cause the line, the section that you, you the, the shots from Margot, I think is, I, I like to read the paragraph. It's on 236 in, in my, in the, in the um, Scribner book, um, the orange one It's chapter 19. And uh, he's in a cafe. Um, and it says, I went in and ate dinner. It was a big meal for France, but it seemed very carefully apportioned after Spain. I drank a bottle of wine for company. It was a Chateau Margaux. It was pleasant to be drinking slowly and to be tasting the wine and to be drinking alone. A bottle of wine was good company. Afterward, I had coffee. The waiter recommended a Basque liquor called Izara. He brought in the bottle and poured a liqueur glass full. He said his aura was made of the flowers of the Pyrenees, the veritable flowers of the Pyrenees. It looked like hair oil and smelled like Italian strega. I told him to take the flowers of the Pyrenees away and make a, and bring me a view mark. I don't actually know how to say that, but the mark was good. I had a second mark after the coffee. Um, and like that paragraph, to, there's so much of absence in that paragraph. And, and even the, he's been with all these people for all these weeks. And then he says a bottle of wine was good company. And that seems to be, you know, him sitting there thinking, well, this is better than what I was experiencing previously. And so on the one hand, he seems very, he seems, there seems, there's like a tranquility about it. He's sitting there and he's drinking slowly and he's tasting the wine. Like I can imagine him, you know, go, when he talks about tasting the wine, this is a classic example to me of like um, a Hemingway or a, uh, like, uh, Cormac McCarthy underwriting because it off it gives mm-hmm. you a chance to sort yes. of put yourself there because when you're tasting the wine he doesn't say that he you know he was swirling it in the glass or that he was tasting it and he doesn't talk about tannins and he doesn't talk about all the things you might talk about with wine but you can imagine him doing that like I think when it says he's tasting the wine I think there's a sort of purposefulness in what he seems to be doing because he's talking about the whole approach to the whole meal and he's very careful about that and then he eats, drinks coffee and then he has the liqueur and so there's like a there's a process to eating a really good meal especially in France right like they take it very seriously and he's being directed in that by the the cafe itself 
and he talks about the bottle of wine was good company. And on the one hand, that seems like a very like poetic thing, right? Like there's a sort of depth to a bottle of wine as good as a Chateau Margaux, which is maybe the most famous chateau in the world. And there's a depth to that, which has a sort of person, there's a sort of personality to a bottle of wine that's that good, that, you know, that, that's that uh, well, uh, like that, that's carefully created. And yet at the same time, there's a sadness to that that mm. bucks up against that tranquility because it's, it's a reminder that the other people that he was with were not such good company. And it's a reminder that he's sharing the moment with a bottle of wine and not with bread or not with Bill or not with anybody else. That's, you know, so it's both tranquil and extremely lonely bucking up against each other. <clears throat> and so for me, in a way, it's like one of the key scenes of the book because those two things are buck up, buck, bucking up against each other. Um, and, and then that leads into the stuff in the end with, with Brett. Um, and so then that gets me wondering about this, the flowers of the Pyrenees that he kind of rejects, that he doesn't like. And I was wondering how that plays into this whole scenario that Hemingway is creating here. Um, do you, is that just him dropping is like, is it kind of a, like sort of, uh, Comic relief. Humor, like yeah. Comic relief. Is it sort of like a, a dark Hemingway humor? Or is there something more to that in this moment? I I haven't read anything more to it in this moment. I've always just read that as like just a funny little comic relief moment, but I am willing to be convinced that there's some kind of symbolic depth. I don't to it. I'm not saying that I'm not it's not a leading yeah. question. I'm actually wondering. Like this seems like this big moment where he's finally by himself and you know, I think Hemingway drops in the Chateau Margaux for a reason, but then does he not drop the Pyrenees in for a reason other than to give us some sort of relief in this, like, kind of... Like, to me, one of the things about Hemingway... Tim, you've talked about tension. And he's built up this tension through the whole book. And then he drops these moments of tension where there's so much tension in three lines. And then sometimes there's so much release of tension in three lines. And not a lot of writers can do that. And that's one of Hemingway's great gifts. And so I'm wondering if, like, he builds up the tension in those three lines about the Chateau Margaux and then the Pyrenees stuff is about releasing that tension or is it continuing to build it up or am I just reading too much into it? Am I reading too like closely? <laughs> reading too I'm much. Kind of Heidi. I kind of, what we should call it. I'm just I read it as he didn't like it. And so he got something else. I didn't read, I didn't read much into it. That's fair. I I'm, I'm, again, I'm, I'm asking. Right. I think it's a setup for the, um, for the next paragraph. So for me, it's on 237. Yep. The waiter seemed a little offended about the flowers of the Pyrenees, so I overtipped him. That made him happy. It felt comfortable to be in a country where it was so simple to make people happy. You can never tell whether a Spanish waiter will thank you. Everything is on such a clear financial basis in France. It is the simplest country to live in. No one makes things complicated by becoming your friend for any obscure reason. If you want people to like you, you only have to spend a little money. I spent a little money, and the waiter liked me. He appreciated my valuable qualities. He would be glad to see me back. I would dine there again sometime, and he would be glad to see me and would want me at his table. I, it would be sincere, a sincere liking because he would have a sound basis. I was back in France. Yeah, there's a transactional nature to the relationship. And it's, isn't this like the world that Jake is now inhabiting? I mean, this is, this is um, like the, the public square stripped free of anything but transaction. 
this is kind of the new world that's been happening, the new world that he flouted in Spain, uh, that he corrupted when he introduced Brett to the bullfighter, that he can appreciate but can't really participate in, the world of ritual and complex relationships. These things are gone in Spain. And I think that he loves those things in Spain. And I think they are now kind of leaving for him. They, he can't participate in those things anymore. He's, he's actually hmm. kind of joined the forces of the corruptors. So wait, so in France, this transactional, like the simplicity of transaction that can define relationships, that's, that's the bad thing. But then the, the more complex relationships that he had in Spain is the good thing. Yeah, and by complex, I don't mean strained. I just mean right. um, Montoya. I mean, his relationship with Montoya is complex. Montoya is the owner of the hotel where he stays. They have ostensibly a transactional, financially transactionable relationship. But it's so much more complicated than that because they also have a friendship. And it's also more complicated than that because Jacob introduces Brett to the bullfighter and Montoya harshly disapproves because the rules have been broken. The rules of this more complex world in Spain have been broken. And so it's comforting for Jake to kind of return to this, this French landscape. But I read this a little bit with a sneer. I don't read Jake extolling um, the transactional nature of France as a good thing. It's just a simpler life, but he says it's comfortable to be in that country. Yeah, it's comfortable. But it's not, I don't think that Jake is saying, yeah, th and this is the way that the world ought to be. Right, okay, I see what yeah. you're saying, yeah. yeah. It's, it's comfortable, just, but that doesn't yeah. necessarily make it better. Well, it's just soothing exactly. for him right now because everything's been so complicated and everything got so tangled up. And so it's like soothing for him to be on grounds that he can understand, right? And that's simple and that's clear cut. And one thing I love about the way Hemingway does this is he makes him comfortable for a minute, but then you know it's not really going to last. Of course. Like, you know that right. Brett's, something's going to happen, and by the end of the book, he's not going to be sitting in France by himself with this easy transactional relationship, drinking right. Chateau Margot every day, right? Like, you know, some, it, it's like another way of presenting tension or suggesting mm -hmm. that, that the, everything's going to get turned upside down again. Right. So See, when... Oh, go ahead. Go ahead, go ahead. No, go. I, I'm just really curious about um, both of, like two very distinct reactions to this interlude because I find this whole interlude extremely soothing and mm. like healthy. And I've not always been the fine upstanding citizen you see before you today. And so <laughs> I know how this feels. <laughs> um. But I'm also wondering if it's partly personality, like the idea of like being surrounded by complicated, messy relationships that are getting worse and worse. And then to like distance yourself from them and go be alone is like so, so attractive to me as an introverted kind of person. I love people, but I, I like need that. I spend a lot of time alone. And I, I think that I'm wondering if part of I don't think this is lonely at all. I find this like very healing and necessary for Jake. But what? I also don't think that any, I also read this as a very circular type of novel. Like this is mm -hmm. yeah. a pattern mm -hmm. in their lives. Like this isn't, this is going to happen next year when they go to the fiesta. 
This is yeah. like they're gonna like they go and they mess things up, smash each other up, as as Fitzgerald said, another member of the lost generation. And then they go away and lick their wounds for a while, and then they come back together and party some more. And it's, it's just another circle around the sun. Mm-hmm. I, I find his this section to be, I don't know that I would say soothing, but I find it very human. Because there's this, there's the bit, for example, after he goes to eat and he, you know, he goes to the hotel and he takes out his books puts him on the shelf and he organizes his clothes and he takes his stuff down to the laundry and he takes a shower and he goes for a swim. And I read it as if he is trying to put things, he's trying to create some order yes. for himself. So as you've talked about a lot, there's a lot, been a lot of disorder in this book. <clears throat> and then the, even the transactional nature of that, he, he finds it soothing in the moment because it's, there's a sort of logic to it, right? If I give you this, then you're going to feel this way about me. And he's, so he's making an attempt to, to generate order in his world. And I find that very human because when things get chaotic, you we try to generate, create things, you know, whether it's we organize our desk, right? We, you know, you, things are chaotic, you clean right. your room, you know, you, you know, uh, whatever, whatever it is, like your works, your, your work, some, things are chaotic with your work. You're going to try to find little ways to create some order in your, in your head and sort of in yourself. Um, and so, he seems to be pursuing that, but then in the midst of that, the telegraph arrives. Mm-hmm. Telegram, telegram. Are we in the age of telegrams or still in the age of telegraphs? <laughs> telegram. Um, and so then, I, so it's and so as you say, it's cyclical. Like as he's he he finds he's trying to create an order. Just when he thinks he's maybe going to have a little bit of peace, all of a sudden, Brett needs help again. Right. Um, that's to me, that's the difference. Like, I agree. There's a sort of um, recovery and recuperation period that we just read. But for me, looming over all of it mm-hmm. is the specter of Lady Bread Ashley. Right. Mm-hmm. Agreed. She's this unspoken yes. presence. I mean, like, like you're saying, David, she's like this absence. And the absence for me is so loud. Mm-hmm. That, that, and I think part of the reason that it's additionally loud, more loud than when she was hanging out with um, the Count or when she was, you know, with Mike, is that I think there's a little bit of Jake that realizes she's actually with someone that he respects deeply. He respects the bullfighter. She may be with a better man now because previously she would always come back to him. Right. Always come back to him. But now there's this possibility that right. no, right. she's not going to come back to him. Right. That's to me, that's the part of that just feels like there's a amid the recuperation, there's this sadness that was that's that's more palpable than was than it was before the, the party started. Hmm. So in the end, she she does call for him, and then he goes to her. But what does it mean? The call for Jake. Either way, like at the end of the novel, where are where are where are they? I mean, like, what's the you know what's changed? Has anything changed? I don't think anything's um, changed. No, it's another another trip around the sun. Yeah. Are they more healthy? Is it less healthy? I mean, is there it's is there the any same. hope? <laughs> yeah, it really does feel like the same. It's doesn't the same. It? It's like they're back in Paris, and she's 
getting out of the car and saying, hey, you chaps, which by the way, I really wanted to say, hey, you chaps at the top of every show. And then we changed the intro. So oh. now I can't say it. So we I mean, I could, yeah. but it would be awkward and throwing it. Would in you like to just, we can re we can reenact the old, the old intro for a second here. Hey, you, I'll just to, say it now. Hey, you chaps. Right. <laughs> um, so yeah, I don't, I, I don't think anything irrevocable has happened. I don't think anything's permanently broken that won't just be patched together like it always is. This is just another trip around the sun. The sun is rising again. It will set again. The same cycle of disorder and um, reordering. But the, so the is ordering, there but is there any hope? Well, I mean, you have. I don't I don't know if it's hope or if it's a thesis statement for the lost generation on page 248 the very famous famous second most famous line probably um other than the last line of the novel at the bottom of it I'm going to say a bad word here so cover your kids ears if you don't want them to hear it um when Jake or excuse me Brett sends Romero away and she's shaking and Jake is comforting her and she says at the bottom, you know, it makes one feel rather good deciding not to be a bitch. <laughs> yes. It's sort of what we have instead of God. Like that, is that hope or is that despair? That's the brilliance of Hemingway, right? Like, is that a moment of hope? Is that a moment of, of moral purity or clarity so for her? Or is that just... A, another statement of enduring despair it's hmm. and i think it's important that this gets brought up here because um we have this call, we we have had earlier these two contrasting uh scenes in the church mm-hmm. where jake goes in and he's able to pray and he prays a little you know he doesn't even view his prayer as very good right and then but at least he makes the attempt he says at the time i'm not sure that i'm that religious but then you know, I try to be sometimes or whatever he says. Brett goes into the church with him towards the end of the book and she can't pray. And then she's she's like, I didn't realize you were religion, religious. And he's like, oh, oh, I'm quite religious sometimes or whatever he says. And then we get this line here, which as you said, um, feels rather good deciding not to be. And then, yes, it's, it, it's sort of what we have instead of God. And then, and then he says, some people have God quite a lot. So let's con- can we contrast these two approaches to these two these two praying church scenes mm-hmm. and then in with based on what we have here with the end because I feel like he's bringing those two scenes together with with these three lines here. Right. Agreed. So I didn't really ask a question I just said can we do something and <laughs> I think that the difference between the two of them inside the church is meant to be largely negated. Sure, Jake seems to have been raised Catholic and is in part a practicing Catholic. Um, and Lady Brett was not. But I've read the the kind of differences between them to be minimal. And I and I think that our author is trying to highlight that. Um, Jake likes the color blue and Lady Brett doesn't like the color blue. And that's kind of the sum total difference in this book. 
Like they live the same way regardless of whether. Exactly. Yeah, they, they make the same choices, exactly. which is what Cone and then later Lady Brett seem to be saying when they say what's, or is it, is it Brett or is it Jake who says, what's the use? Again, repeats that. What's the use? What's the use? Right. So in some sense, I think that's exactly what they're getting at is what you just said. It comes to the same thing in the end. It comes to yeah. just another circle, another cycle of, you know, aimlessness and despair. Um, and, but underneath that, the, the question of hope, I think, is super important in Hemingway because he's not a nihilist. I, I mean, he's really not. He's looking, right, for some kind of, there's, there is some kind of moral presence in his novels and in these relationships. Um, there's some kind of moral standard that, that ties throughout um, the, his books and in this book that, that characters either rise or fall to. Um, and then yeah, I mean, they I think grieve that- when they don't meet that standard, but they can't trace it anywhere. They can't seem yeah. to find it or locate it. Yeah. David, what do you think? Well, I was just going to say that I think that there's a misconception that because Hemingway subverts traditional fictional forms is, is evidence that he is a nihilist or that he also wants to subvert like cultural norms, which I actually don't think, I think that, I don't think that's true. I think that like, that's kind of a, that's kind of like a bad reading. I don't think that, I think that's just like reaching for the it's a shallow reading, shallow <laughs> reading. Yeah. But, but I, th- I read their differences to be much more profound. I, I think hmm. that their differences are why they can't be together. Like, I think that in a sense, they're, they're religious differences. Like, I think that, I think that their responses in the church are almost like objective correlatives for why they can't be together. I mean, at the end of the book, she says, we could have had such a good time together or whatever she says. And then he has the famous line, isn't it pretty to think so? And I think that he recognizes in a way that she doesn't, um, or at least the novel is suggesting, and maybe is as, as much as I should say, that, that they have like sort of core, core uh, worldviews, if you will, for just to over, use an, a simple, an oversimplified term, um, that keep them from being able to really connect. Um, that they're grasping for different things because I don't think they they can't not be together because of his wound. Like that's the to me that's like the um it's almost like a red herring. It's like um meant to distract you. Um, I I think that he rec- like if she wanted, I mean they couldn't be together in certain ways, <laughs> but they could have been still committed to one another. And they could have had like a relationship. They could have had a healthy friendship, all those sorts of things, whatever, however you want to take it exactly. Um, But the thing that keeps them apart is that they have essentially different uh, views of the world, I think. And I think that they both, I think that they um, fall into old traps for different reasons. Um, So when she, earlier in the book, David, when Lady Brett says, describes the count, He's one of us, Jake. He's one of us. I take that to be true. There's something that the three of them share, and I think it's something like a view of the world. And there's some differences there. I've never um, thought that the primary 
difference between Lady Brett and Jake is like like that their codes are profoundly different because I actually think when they, in some ways their codes are kind of they're sort of um, a masculine and feminine archetypes that are kind of in some ways united. Like I think their codes are kind of similar. Um, I, I think that's fair. I but I don't know that I'm necessarily talking about code. Um, I think there's like more of a sensitivity question that's different is maybe the way I want to put it. But go ahead, say what you're going to say. I, I I agree with you about that. His injury is a red herring, but I really it's I think it's the red herring that Brett uses to sort of justify her not being able to be with Jake because she can't be with anybody. Mm-hmm. I just don't think she can stay with anybody. And I think she probably loves Jake and she also probably knows like, I just couldn't stay. And so, oh so, okay. gosh, if yeah. not for the, for the injury. I think you're right. So this is what I would say. She can't be with anybody because for the same reason that she doesn't have a sensitivity to the things that are happening in the church. Whereas he is able to be committed to her despite every, the way she treats him because he does have a sensitivity to the things that are happening in the church. Like, I think that there's a, I think those things mirror each other. Like, I think that the same sensitivity that allows him to see what's happening in the church as meaningful is what allows him to be to committed to her Brett. despite everything that she puts him through. And do you think that that appreciation of what happens in the church, the fact that Jake can appreciate what happens in the church um, and Brett seems not to be able to, do you think that overlays onto the bullfight? How so? Do you think that Jake can appreciate it? <laughs> I was not it? expecting that question to go that direction. That's interesting. Oh, really? Do you think Jake can appreciate it and she can't? Oh. Right, because Jake's a true aficionado, whereas she just isn't bothered by the blood and wants to sleep with the bullfighter. Yeah. Jake, yeah. Jake can appreciate it in the way that some... Okay, th- I mean, this is. I think this is really important, actually. Jake appreciates the bullfighting because he recognizes how terrible it is. Like he, he appreciates the art of it and he appreciates the whole situation. He's not bloodthirsty about it in the same way that someone might be able to appreciate what's going on in the church because they recognize how terrible what is happening up on the crucifix is. And I think in both cases, it's it's momentous. Do you mean, so you mean the, the word terrible threw me off a little bit. Oh, I think I was using the word. I think I was using that word because I think I thought you said it. Um, but um, momentous, but also, I I think gruesome. I think he recognizes yeah. that there's a gruesomeness to what's going on down there, and he he recognizes it for what it is. Like he doesn't take lightly what's happening. Whereas in a way, she takes it lightly because she, as Heidi said, she just wants to sleep with the bullfighter. She does the the blood is sort of like, you know, immaterial to her. Whereas to him, it's almost like the whole point. This is an interesting conversation for a lot of reasons. I think the wound question is interesting to me because it sparked a thought about Lady Brett and her relationship with Romero. What he wants, one thing we haven't talked too much about 
on the show, because there's so much to talk about in this short book, uh, is Lady Brett's name and the fact that she has short hair and the fact that in a lot of ways she's more yeah. manly than any of the men and that, that yeah. you know, that um, she's a bit androgynous, although she's deeply desired by all the men as a woman. And that's interesting. Well, there have been many essays right? written on flapper culture from this perspective. Absolutely. It's true. So. It's a huge part of the book. Um, and she's completely unique amongst Hemingway heroines for the very reasons that I'm saying. And, um, but that, at the end of the novel, Romero wants, she rejects him and she thinks it's for moral reasons, which it very well might have been. She's going to destroy his career. It's bad for him to be with her. He should go back and be a bullfighter. And she, she's a bit, she's traumatized by that, but she's also pretty self-congratulatory. And it's the one action she takes in the book that's actually for the sake of another and feels good to not be that, that line. But at the same time, it seems pretty clear from her conversation with Jake that one of the reasons that she sends Romero away is because he wants her to have his babies. He wants her to be more womanly. He wants her to grow her Mm -hmm. hair out and he Mm -hmm. wants her to marry her. And he wants her, he wants to bring her into his culture. Um, And we've already talked about how he in the novel represents kind of this old world grandeur um, and a connection to the past. And she's, you know, nothing if not a severely modern woman uh, for the time. And, and, and that's interesting that you say that Jake's wound is a red herring because at the end, they are similarly wounded. He's been inflicted by the war and she's in many ways inflicted herself with this wound of infertility, right? Like she won't be a mother. She's not going to ruin her kids. Right. And she could be self-congratulatory about that, or she could heal and get better and become a better person and become a mother, right? And so there is this sense in which Brett wounds herself and, and has a different kind of, there's a different, there's a different kind of moral weight to the disorder that she brings within her society uh, versus the men who are wounded. They receive a wound, she inflicts wounds. And so I think that goes somewhat along with what you're saying, which isn't to say that she's not wounded herself, mm-hmm. but she's the one between, between the two of them, and I'd probably argue within the whole group, that could make different. She could be different. And I think that's highlighted in this final scene. Yeah, I mean, her line, we could have had a good time together uh-huh. suggests that. Of course, that's a... Well, Hemingway is so great because each of the that line and then his phrase, isn't it pretty to think so? <laughs> are, there's so many ways to talk about those two lines. Oh, and, you know, it, it's like, there's, there's such short, punchy lines that are so full of so many, so much, so many possibilities. Um, which is why they're remembered, I guess. Um, I don't think Brett really. I don't think Brett loves Jake. I don't really. No, I think Jake loves Brett, but yeah. I think that he. I also think he is somebody who dances around her and holds her up as an image. I don't think she loves anybody, mm. and I think that's mm-hmm. her great tragedy. Like, it's like the saddest thing to not love anybody in an enduring way to send everybody away who loves you. 
to like use them and cast them aside and never do them any good and just hurt them your whole life. It's like, it's like the saddest fate I can think of for a woman. But that's okay. Yeah. But this is why this goes along with what I'm saying about the church stuff. Mm, To me, these are the two crucial scenes in the book because he, like, it is so meaningful that he, he has a sensitivity and he makes an attempt to be present in that church. He makes an attempt to participate in it. And she has no, she is sensitive to it in a way that it like, she runs from it. She begins to shake and like rejects it out of hand and she can't participate in it. And like what she's doing is she is, she is rejecting um, she's she's rejecting the, the possibility of being whole and doing that. And he at least recognizes that in the church is a means of healing. And he, in a sort of weak way, attempts to participate in that. And he at least isn't rejecting it yet. Now, theoretically, maybe that could happen later, of course. Like he, he could go around the sun enough times and, and reject it. Sure. But he hasn't, he hasn't yet. Which actually, okay, this is going to be a weird transition. This is going to be a weird transition. This brings me to the question of bullfighting. Mm -hmm. Why bullfighting? Is it just that Hemingway saw bullfights? Because when he's writing this novel about the lost generation, he could have used any number of experiences that he had, right? I mean, he was in World War I. He had all kinds of crazy experiences, even when he was in his mid-20s. So what is the... How does bullfighting itself play into this as a sort of into this novel as a theme and, and why bullfighting? I feel like we have to at least address this question before we, uh, before we finish the book. Tim, what do you think about this? You've been to a bullfight. <laughs> what did bullfighting represent in your life? <laughs> Heidi, what was the Picasso quote? I think that you cited it. Maybe it was David. Um, it's something like to, to an Englishman, a bullfight is butchery to a Spaniard it's religion or something like that sounds right I, like it I mean, wasn't that's, that's me I, but I like that quote um I, I kind of think that's what's going on and that's I think part of the reason why I appreciate your reading of the church scene David and I in any way put those put that in there for a reason but I almost read the church scenes as juxtapositions to the bullfights. The church is a place of ritual and, and deep meaning um, in which a sacrifice is enacted. A bullfight is a place of ritual and deep meaning where sacrifices are enacted. And I think that neither Jake nor Brett can find what they're seeking in the church. I think Jake finds it in the bullfight. I think it is, um, it is the enactment of a brave man in front of everyone risking his life over and over to accomplish a feat that he can only accomplish by courage and great risk. And I, and I think the great hero of the book is, Romero. I mean, I think that for me, one of the key kind of peaks in the mountains of this book is the fact that Romero got up over and over and over when Robert Cohn was hitting him. He not Robert Cohn knocks out everybody else, but Romero has something in him that Jake like admires really, really deeply 
And I think that we see it enacted in, in the bullfight. So that's because Jake's the bull. Jake's the bull. Like he's being passed by Lady Brett. Or he wants to be the bull. It's such a good... I, I was thinking about this exact question. Like who... You know, I like I said a couple times, it's not a straightforward allegory. They all kind of shift in and out um, of the different roles within the bullfight. Um, and David, you said last week that you wanted to talk about fight or that you were thinking as we headed into this, the the fighting um the boxing thing yeah yeah yeah. who's gonna punch who because who is going to punch whom um it was always gonna be robert cohen punching someone right well and i think he punched (laughs) the one thing we know about robert he's gonna punch people yeah i'm so much more sympathetic to cohen this reading than i've ever been but um i think he punched exactly the right people um (laughs) so um but that that question of who is the bull and is um, is like su- very, very, very much related to, you said, why bullfighting? And I think a lot of it is because bullfighting is, it does have this pageantry to it. It does have this, you know, this weight of tradition and um, beauty and grace and all that stuff, but it is inherently destructive to every single participant. Bull, matador, right. steer. Uh, I, people everybody the in the ring, picadors, everybody in the ring is at risk and everybody is going to be defeated by the thing that they're participating in, in some way. Yeah. I mean, I think, and, and Romero's ability to control the bull is why Brett is impressed with him in part. Like it's not just because he's this beautiful young guy, which helps, but that's, I think part of the whole, the whole thing, like, you know, in literature, Bulls are like this are a huge archetype throughout literature. Right. I mean, they in some in some traditions the bulls are like gods, right? Or or mm-hmm. gods come down to earth as bulls. Um right. they're like, you know, they they were like kings practically the way they were the way they were viewed. But they also represent this like masculinity in some cultures virility represented virility. Yes. Yes. And so Romero is, you know, like he he he's like more power than he's able to control the godlike virile fertile you know creature that you know throughout all of literature has represented or throughout many literary traditions has represented the height of masculinity if you will well and, his and he's able to dominate is very it. seductive like the description of how he takes down the bull is like you could just yeah, substitute woman and it's a very seductive scene um he's like the he's like the uber yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry. I interrupted you, David. No, no, no it's fine. And, and so yeah. I think it's just me. Like she sees that about him mm-hmm. and it's like runs so counter to, to, uh, the men in her life. Jake's yeah, and Jake's, <laughs> Jake's status, Jake's, you know, um, characteristics. I mean, he, you know, he wants, he, he can't, he, he is not fertile. He's not, you know, mm-hmm. he doesn't have the capacity to be the uber masculine you know, to dominate the masculine, um, the masculine ring there, right? Like in a ring full of masculinity, Romero dominates all of them. He's, he, and that's what, that's what she likes about him. And it's what he recognizes he can't, can't have. Um, but I also wonder if there is something to like, you guys talk about the pageantry thing. Um, 
the the ritual, the traditions, and you mentioned that it runs in comparison to the the church stuff, Tim. What did you mean by that exactly? Because I think there is something to the contrast between the the rituals of bullfighting and the rituals of the Catholic Church, in in you know that they go to visit. Um, and I think I personally I think Jake values them both for that ritual for that tradition. I think he sees this. I think he, I don't know that he would say that they're similar, but I think that the fact that he, he has a sensitivity to those traditions in both cases, or the fact that he has an interest in both is due to a sensitivity to those rituals and traditions. And I think that they're like the common threads there is what he recognizes in both of them. So I'd love to know what you meant by, by that comment about the contrast between the, the rituals of the church and the rituals of the the bullfighting. And part of this, I think part of my answer is informed by things outside the book, but I think also from the book, the things that I think the, the, what I read inside the book is that when Jake talks, he talks not about what the Pope has done or um, anything associated with the Catholic church. He talks about, bullfights that's what he's interested in and he likes to explain it to brett he likes to talk about it with montoya he likes to talk about it with bill and cone so i think he his imagination is captured by the bullfights and and i think and again a lot of this is like stuff outside of the text so take it for what it's worth i Hemingway did not strike me. Hemingway is not a terribly religious figure. I just see. I disagree with that. That's maybe part of really. Yeah, I mean, I think he's extremely Catholic. Extremely. Okay, go ahead. But not necessarily in a like. I think he was a troubled Catholic. So, like, but do you think he's writing? He's attempting to write a Catholic novel the same way that Graham Greene was, or Evil well, and Graham Greene was a Graham Greene was a neurotic Catholic who right. had no choice but to write about what was going on in his soul. Right. <laughs> so, so I don't what, think it was how the would same you way. Compare Hemingway with what we might think of as the 20th century Catholic novelists. I don't think that he was trying to write a novel that's Catholic. I think that he was so. I think his. I think a sort of. Uh, um, latent Catholicism that went waxed and waned throughout his life was so embedded in his psyche that it couldn't help come out in his work. So I don't think that he's trying to write a Catholic novel the way Graham Greene or Waugh or whoever were trying to write Catholic novels where they're actively trying to write Catholic novels. I just think that he couldn't rid himself of Catholicism. Um, and I think that that was something like sometimes he raved against it and sometimes he accepted it and bought into it. Um, and I think that it, I, I mean, I think it troubled him and I think it gave him hope at the same time. Um, much like, um, I, well, I think someone needs to write, I would love to read a book about the relationship of his Catholicism with his notion of masculinity because I think that there, um, I think there's some pretty complex inter, interweaving ideas there um, in terms of how he thought about God and priests and all that kind of stuff. Um, there's a book or an essay written recently about um his catholicism that i have to find the link yeah there was in the guardian there was something in the guardian too but i think there's a book either coming out or that came out recently there's also a book about how he actually was a secret spy uh 
and which I want to read. So many. That's books. a side note, though. <laughs> David, I think I can. I could get with your. I think the latent Catholicism. I think I can get with that, and I could even like make a case, presuming that that's true, that he's this latent Catholic and it's kind of like left a, a vacuum in him, that his affection for bullfights in some way is a surrogate for that. That makes, that makes complete sense to me. And perhaps he is wrestling with it. I just don't see his wrestling as his wrestling with the Catholic church as a dominant motif in the book. I see it as a lesser motif in the book. And I think the major motif would be the bullfighting and what it means. Yeah, I, I, I think the bullfight provides the dominant motif rather than church. his visits to the church. The church keeps coming up, though, and I, I, agree, with, I agree with you on this, Tim. And I do think that he's... Um, that I think one of the... I think we can trace differences in all the characters in their psyches. Uh, they're fully human characters, and you can you can trace these. You know, Lady Brett's very different than Mike, very different from Jake, and the way that they approach life and truth. But I, I'd still, I think, I would still argue, and I'm willing to be convinced otherwise, that one of the conclusions that the novel itself comes to is that it isn't any use those differences. You just still end up hungover, drunk, going like around the same tree with these dysfunctional relationships. No matter what you believe, no matter where you go, no matter where you travel, no matter who you know, it isn't any damn use. And I think that's one of the thing, one of the conclusions of this particular novel and one of the griefs of this novel is that there are these differences and yet it all comes oh, to man. the same thing I, in the end. I, wow. Okay. So I disagree completely. Okay. Like I, I actually think the opposite is what this book is trying to say. Because this book is like, it's a subversion of literary archetypes because it's subverting traditional symbols and suggesting that the, that the subversion of those symbols themselves is what leads to that sort of the, the crisis that these people are living in. Just as the like, the world itself was in crisis. So like you look at every symbol that's in this book, it's, it's as we've been talking about, it's a contrast with some other use of that thing. Right. So, I mean, you've even got like the bulls, which I think he's being very purposeful about the notion of like the, the idea of gods coming down to earth. I think he's choosing this, this symbol very carefully. And like you've even got that you've got wine, you've got blood, you've got sacrifice, you've got ritual and tradition, right. you've got the church versus the bullfight. I think all these things are about like the, the wrong use of those things and how when they're used wrongly, you run into that cycle. You have that cycle. But when they're used properly, like there's a rightly ordered way that these things ought to be used that is healthy and does lead to um, like, like I think he's, I think he's using wine, like the over drinking of wine as a sort of like recognition of like it's in runs in contrast to the use of wine as part of a church ritual. Mm -hmm. I think he's using like the idea of sacrifice with the bulls, like literally killing the creature that, that got the, that gods and throughout literature came down to earth as like sacrifice and thus sort of by proxy, like sac killing a God creature. Right. I think he's using all of these to suggest that, that they're in this position because they have rejected the, 
the prior meaning of those symbols. But you're arguing that Hemingway or the novel is indicting that, not agreeing with it. Like you're, what you're saying is that Hemingway has written this to reveal that then these characters have come to the wrong conclusion in rejecting the, these traditions or distorting them diabolically. But they've made a conscientious choice. Right. Well, the characters, <laughs> the characters come to the conclude. the characters end with, isn't it pretty to think so? There is no, the, the characters, I don't think that they're nihilists, but the characters at the end have come to the conclusion that it isn't any use. And you're saying Hemingway and the novel hasn't come to that conclusion. I, the second thing I definitely think is true. Okay. I don't think Hemingway is saying that it isn't any use. Do I think the characters? I think the characters don't come to conclusions. I don't think huh. these are characters that come to conclusions. That's, that might be part of what my problem is. Because I don't, I think that, I think that they go from one experience to the next in search of a conclusion. I think that's, I don't know that at the end of the book, like maybe in the moment they feel a certain way, but if it's everything cyclical, then they're going to have the next experience is going to tell them some new conclusion to draw. So who, oh, and you see Jake as an exception to that, David? Good question. Okay. So, okay. So there's, think about it this way. There's like, I'm going to have to use hand signals here <laughs> Yeah. For, for people. I'll try to explain my hand signals. There's a core in the middle, right? Okay. Like there's a there's a order, like a like some sort of like let's uh, I'm making this up as I go along. There's like an energy core in the middle, right? And it's like the ordering structure of the universe. I'm using going to use very general terms here. And then you've got these characters that are like going around in circles around that core, uh-huh. but they never really make in contact with it. I think different characters are further out in their circles from that core. So like if if there's a right order rightly ordered way of viewing the world and that's in the middle then like Jake's a little closer in terms of how he's circling around that. I'm using circles because you guys were uh-huh. talking about the idea of it's just you're just constantly that's going helpful. in circles. What you're, you're saying just, is really helpful for me. So he's a little closer to that energy core in the middle and then you've got Brett's maybe one circle out and then Robert actually Robert might be second and then you, it's, you we could order all these characters. I think it like like the rings of Saturn, right? And so I don't I think he's closer to it, but I don't know that he's an exception to to the rule that everyone else is. Okay. If that makes sense. I think he is more sensitive to what may... So I think they all recognize there's something wrong, right? Mm-hmm. And they're just in a lot of pain, so they recognize that. I think he is closer to understanding what it is that's causing them to be wrong and what to feel badly and what the solution to that might be. I don't know that he's... I'm not saying he's healthy. I think he recognizes what that solution would be more than... Right. Than Brett, for example. Because he keeps returning to the church and attempting to participate in the church. And right. And I don't think that Hemingway is being cynical about that. Right. I don't don't think Hemingway is a cynic. I totally agree. Completely agree. And I think he would say it's the, yeah, I I agree with you. I think he was maybe a cynic about the the establishment on earth, like, you know, the, 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 
business of the church or whatever, Hemingway the man. But I don't think he was a cynic about about the church and the notion of faith per se, if that makes sense. Do you think that? Yeah, do you I agree. think that Hemingway would say that? Where would where do you think the novel is placing the disconnect the the failure between the core and those revolving around it in that second circle that you're referencing? Where does where do you think the novel puts the blame for that, or indicts, or considers you mean a failure? That keeps, what is it that keeps them from being closer to the circle? Yes. In the world of the novel itself. Um, I'm trying to put it in a way that's like from the book instead of from a different book. <laughs> I, um, I, I think there's a lot in common with this book and um, um, what's the book where they we read earlier the the line uh, about mean, connection. Do um, you mean this? Song? Oh yeah, Howard's End. Howard's End. I think there's a very a lot of similarity between this and Howard's End, and I think that um, part of the problem, at least, is the the there's but it's like a chicken and egg thing here, but the the ability, the inability to connect, mm-hmm. um, and and but also being able, not being able to diagnose what it is is keeping you from being able. Right, to I was going to say that people. seems like a symptom because, to me, not the because, cause. Right, I mean, like that's why the his injury is like a red herring by the end of the book because it's like it's like her, it's like almost like an excuse for why she can't be tight with him, you know, <laughs> like she she can't she thinks she can't offer him anything because he's got this wound that makes him infertile. But like, that's a, that's an excuse for her actually not actively trying to connect with him because there's other kinds of connection too. Um, uh, so I, it might, that might be what, what I would say. Um, what is the, so ask the question and, and again. They have, Go what's ahead, the failure? They've, Go ahead. They have an inability to connect with each other or toward this kind of um, deep, grounded, organizing way that the world ought to be. Uh, yes. Both. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think that the, I don't think that I think that the inability, I think those two inabilities are connected to one another. Yeah, I agree. I, I'm curious. I think. Heidi asked the question earlier, this is the one that I'm most curious about, is like, why not? I mean, or What's who is to blame or what is to blame for that disconnect? I mean, I think that it goes back to the bullfighting to some degree because I think that there is a sense in which um, the bulls sort of, I mean, try not to read into this too much here. But I think there is a degree to which the bulls represent the lost generation being mm-hmm. lured into the arena and danced with and then slaughtered. Um, Agreed. I don't think that it... I actually don't think... I think that that's what Hemingway is saying it feels like um, to be part of that generation, to, you know... And there's not a lot of a difference between what the bull is going through when it's lashing out in rage sometimes like Robert Cohn at the other creatures and the people in the, in the ring. And sometimes the bulls just 
want to do nothing, right? They just want to stand there and everyone jeers at them for wanting to stand there. And that's sort of like Mike or something, you know, there's, um, so I think that is sort of representative of what it's like to live in the age and that living in the age itself is cause. Um, and so in that way, I don't know that it's so much, so unlike what you might C.S. Eliot might've written. Um, like I think you could read the wasteland and the sun also rises as an interesting double feature. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that they're getting Mm -hmm. at similar things and I don't think that their conclusions about what is causing it and what the solutions are, are that far apart. Um, but okay. So here's where I would differ or, or maybe just ask the question. I think that the Catholic novelists, who we would traditionally think of as the Catholic novelists. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm not saying that's Hemingway. Advocating for a return. And I don't hear that in Hemingway ever. Uh, but Hemingway's not an advocate. Hemingway's just a right. He's a, he, he's a storyteller. Hemingway's a journalist. He's a, right. he's he's he he would say that what he's giving us, I, I think that he would say he what he's giving here is facts. He's telling yeah. us what the age is like. Yes. He's not saying that the age is like this and thus we need to return to this. Mm-hmm. Whereas Green is, Graham Green is like, in a way, he's an evangelist. Yes. I mean, I'm using the term mm-hmm. very loosely. He's yeah. saying, you know, there is something to return to. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that right. Hemingway, while hopeful, is maybe a little more cynical because he, about, I mean, I said he wasn't cynical about the church, but I think that he, maybe he is more cynical about, he maybe is a little less like, um, specific in the ways that solutions can be offered by. I I think I don't know that he. I just don't think his goal is set out. I don't think he sets out to do this to do what those Catholic novelists were going to do. Mm-hmm. But I think that there's a sense in which he he believes what they he clings to what they say. Um, we could get into some Hemingway life stuff here if we wanted to, but that, <laughs> that's a different conversation. I mean, maybe, maybe. it's not. I don't know. Maybe I don't I'm trying know. not. To, I'm trying to. Um, I also don't know that. Um, this is 26 year old Hemingway, and I think he waxed and waned in his hopefulness and in his sense of what orders things. So, on a scale of one to ten, then ten being most hopeful, and I'm an one eight on the one scale. Hopeful at all? Where would you put this novel? Ten's hopeful. Yeah. And one's so what's give me an example of a ten. One is like despairing. No, but like give me an example of a book (laughs) that you would consider a one. About Les Misérables as a very hopeful. I've never read Les Mis, but um, (laughs) do you know do you know the story though? Yeah, yeah. Okay, what about what about the Odyssey? Is that a hopeful story? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Like, do Um, you? I guess I'm. I mean, we can we can talk about scaling it. You know. If you want to, I guess I'm just, I'm, so, I'm trying to gauge how, like, I don't think this novel's hopeful at all, but I don't think that means he's a nihilist. Like despair and nihilism are two different things. And even though Christians conflate that, I just they're don't not think Hemingway same. would think about it this way. That's the trouble for me. Like, I don't think that he is saying, I think he's giving us what he views. He's giving us facts through poetry like that's what he thinks he's doing so i don't think that he's looking at it and i don't think by the end of the book Mm -hmm. that he's trying to say 
the world is like this and thus there's no hope, then he's and he's a cynic and or the world is like this and here's the solution and thus it is hopeful because these mm-hmm. characters are moving towards that solution. I don't I just don't think he was trying to do that. So it's hard for me to answer that question for that reason. Um, because I don't You deny the premise. I think that you this whether this book is hopeful or despairing mm-hmm. says more about you than it does the book. Which I don't mm-hmm. mean as an accusation. Yeah, no, I hear what you're saying. I just I don't know that I I don't know that I agree, but I I get what you're saying. You're saying he's just telling a story about these people. I think he's saying the yeah. world is full of despair. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um but it's also full of good things. Like mm-hmm. honestly, I Yeah. Okay, I view this the the way this book thinks about the people mm-hmm. as a five, a four mm-hmm. on the cynical scale, and the way this book has hope for what the world can offer to people like that as like an eight on the hopeful That's scale. Interesting. I get it. I get the dissonance then that you're describing. Yep, I understand. That's Eight's helpful. pretty high. Seven, yeah. seven. I don't want to make like I don't want to ruin Hemingway's reputation. So let's go with the seven. <laughs> Happy, jolly, sunny. Papa Hemingway. But like embedded in this book is a sense of beauty. Mm-hmm. Agreed. And a sense for things that are beauty. Yes. And the despair of this book is that the characters don't know what that means. They don't know how to use it. They, they destroy mm-hmm. it. They subvert it. They flip all that upside down. They disorder all that. But there is a sense that the world has beautiful things to offer mm-hmm. in it. And so in that way, I think that's what makes the book so complicated. Mm-hmm. And it makes it like the experience of reading it. I so wholeheartedly agree with everything rich. you just said. I think that's 100% um, true. Mm. And like, I think there's this weird, I think there's this weird balance between like Epicureanism and Stoicism in Hemingway mm-hmm. that is, um, it's like um, weirdly un American <laughs> and like difficult to, uh, difficult to process and that's what makes it worth going back to his books like that balance between those things like they're they're like two things running up against each other again um and sometimes Hemingway seems to feel like the way forward is to be an Epicurean and sometimes he feels like the way forward is to be a Stoic and that he's constantly trying to find that ordering balance between those two things which some people would say is asceticism but you know that's a different story (laughs) Mm -hmm. um anyway no that's helpful we just spent the last like 30 minutes getting into my but I think we're getting into the heart of, I think you're getting into the heart of the book though. Like that's what we're talking about. It's interesting that yeah. pretty much up until this final episode, which I'm really sad that it's the final other than the Q&A, but um up until then all of us have been like, yes, whatever you said I completely agree with. And then you get to the end and you like we as readers have come to different conclusions that we hold to be very core to what this novel is. And I find that compelling and speaks to Hemingway as the brilliant novelist that we've been claiming he is. Yeah, but it means either I am really smart because I disagree with the two of you, or I'm really <laughs> dumb because I disagree with the two of you. So, Well, I think it speaks to the complexity of the novel and, the, and, and what... <laughs> oh, right. Yeah, that's what you're saying. Yes, okay, like what it. what it brings up. And, and as you said... And I completely agree with you that so much of our responses to a novel say way more about us as readers than, than they do about the objective 
thing that the novel means or says or is. And I, I think that's one of Hemingway's just, I mean, probably every great novelist, but Hemingway in particular. Uh, but I, there's a way to read Graham Greene wrong. Right. If you get to the to your point about him being an evangelist, if you get to the end of a Graham Greene novel and you like there are certain things that you'd just be reading wrong if you got it out of the novel. And I don't know that that's true about Hemingway. There's just this complexity in this. Um, uh, this yeah, well, there are Hemingway scholars out there that are just yelling at their phone right now. So. Right, but they're the same, right? There's scholars don't know everything they think they know. Like you, we come to conclusions <laughs> about things and, and, and they're fair. And if we can defend them, great. But a, a, a book, a novel is a mirror. And that, and, and, you know, can anybody tell us what a mirror looks like? It looks like me, right? So <laughs> that's, I, and I think that that's a, such a good point um, because a lot of what both of you have said, I'm like initially, oh no, that's not it. But then as I listen, I'm like, that's really fair. That's true. It's just something I didn't see because I was too busy looking at my own face staring back at me from the novel. So that's helpful to talk about. Yeah, and I guess I yeah. just got the last 30 minutes to defend my face. Yeah. So yeah. <laughs> Tim, Tim, you, you, the last couple minutes, you you look like maybe you want to take issue with something, but then Heidi beat you to it, or you were just letting her argue with me. So I, you got to get a chance to you know get in here, and we can throw some punches, just I, in keeping I, with the theme. The more I hear your position, the more it makes sense. I, I'm still I kind of lean toward I don't kind of I lean toward Heidi. All um, I did was ask questions, do, by the way. So it was very Socratic. <laughs> so. Um. I do think that the conclusion of this book is, um, I don't like the word ambiguous, but I can't think of a better one. It's ambiguous in a way that some of Hemingway's other books I don't think are ambiguous. For Whom the Bell Tolls, I think it's clear. He has a heroic character and that hero kind of you know lives his life in the right manner and I think the conclusion of the book is an advocacy for that kind of right that heroic stance. Whereas I mean Hemingway is old a, man was definitely see. into a code. <laughs> yes. Yeah, he had a code. But I think this early book written as a young man, I think that code is still malleable. I don't think that he's really So I agree with you David. I think that he's um Yeah. I think he's trying to assert a code, but I don't know don't know that he has it really fully formed yet in his own mind. I don't think that he's just being a journalist. I'm not, I don't, I think he's doing more than that. I think he's trying to assert something that is still kind of soft clay in his own mind. Well, facts say things though. I mean, I'm not saying he's not trying to make a point with those facts per se. I guess I didn't mean to overstate that part of it. Go on. Sorry. Sorry. Um, Yeah. So I think that's part of the reason why I do, I, I think, yeah, the final chapters that we read for this podcast are like what exactly is going on. I think it's a little bit more pliable and subject to interpretation, I think, than a lot of his other works are. Do you guys read, you guys both love um, A Movable Feast, right? Yes. Like I think you said that. Mm-hmm. Do you, Heidi, do you, do you read A Movable Feast as hopeful? No. It's grief. It's like a, it's to me, it's like a treatise on grief, but it has some really funny parts to it. It's, it's high and low. 
You're saying, yeah, you're saying it's a Hemingway book. It's a Hemingway book. What about you, Tim? I think it's a, that book is very episodic and I think it's meant to be read episodic. It's kind of short stories, all kind of organized under his time in Paris. But I do think that the conclusion about his relationship to his first wife is full of grief. It's, it's, profoundly sad but it's kind of funny that I, I don't read the whole book as leading toward that moment i think of that moment as sort of like refracted light that kind of pools in a similar place and it pools on the grief of what he did to his first wife is a book being uh a, a full of grief or an ep- how did you put it heidi and exercising grief a treatise yeah. on grief is a is the fact that a book is a treatise on grief necessarily hopeless. M- mean that it's hopeless? No, no. But I don't I I don't think Hemingway's work is full of hope. I think it is I think it wants to be. That's a different question. I know, <laughs> but I think well, that's true. And I'm I'm asking a question I hear behind the question, which I might have interpreted wrong. But I I think that Hemingway wants to feel hopeful and I think he's casting around, but I don't know if I think his work finds it. Well, I think that's fair because I think there's a, yeah, okay, go ahead. ahead. But I also think, I want to say one thing I think that you're right about, about the journalist thing is that he's, he is stating, he's at a pivotal moment in history writing, having lived through kind of the before and after of World War I and what that did uh, to the world. And he's reporting on that. I think that you're right about that. He's reporting on it. And I, I, I don't think he finds this, in this I'm comparing or contrasting him to Graham Greene and Flannery, all, you know, the, those Catholic writers that are advocating for a return. I, I, find that Hemingway's just mourning that loss and reporting on how that feels. So I think that you're right about that. But yeah, so I guess that's all. Yeah, no, I I don't actually disagree with that. I think that that's why I said there's a difference between something being hopeless and then like the opposite of hopeless is, I guess, hopeful. But there's a difference between a book being like there's somewhere in between where you say that what you're grieving is the fact that there used to be or is this possibility of hope in the world, but we can't access it. Yeah. And that's what I think Hemingway's books are about. Like they're, they're saying there is a, something to be hopeful in the universe. Like, and so many of the symbols in his books are, are striving or, or representing things in which it's worth hoping. Mm. But the fact that these char- his characters so often can't grasp that hope, like it goes through their fingers, is is what is worth grieving it that they can't reach out and grasp that hope is worth grieving i think that's what his books are about and i don't think that that is a hopeless notion Mm -hmm. i think that that Mm -hmm. is a sad notion but i don't think that he is saying that we're never going to be able to grasp these things i don't think that he's i think that it is a hopeful notion to say that the universe is imbued with those things in fact um so it's i think that's one of the things that makes him i think that's one of the reasons people go back to his work because they recognize in it the sense that there is something worth grasping for in the world. And they recognize that we see ourselves so often as characters for whom that is slipping through our fingers. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, there's, that was one of the things I think makes it a, 
lends a universality to his his canon in general. And I think each of his books has that those characteristics to varying degrees, as anybody's does. Um, that writes as many things as he wrote. Um, hey David, your mic is getting you're you're kind of falling away from the mic. Testing your sound is dimming because you're because the mic's not pointed at you. Hopefully that's better. Yeah, better. Um, well, we've been an hour and a half, mostly me taking having takes that you guys are um do you guys want what 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 should we talk about here at the end before we go to the q a episode next week anything you want to add tim the word elegy kept coming up to me when i Hmm. finished this book It, it feels um mournful but an elegy is also kind of like a celebration of something that has passed and i wonder if that's a way to think about this book that it's not just asserting that the book is that the new world, sorry, it's not asserting that the world is a hopeless vacant place. Mm-hmm. I wonder if it's a morning of something that has passed that his characters feel like they can no longer retrieve. And to Heidi's point, I think that Graham Greene would say something like, yeah, we can retrieve it. It might look different, we but we can to. retrieve it. And we ought to retrieve it. And I think that Hemingway is maybe saying, I can't. I'm mourning its loss. I don't know how we're going to retrieve it. And I don't know that we, I'm not sure that he's asserting that we should try to retreat it. So I don't know. And elegy keeps coming to mind. Hmm. That's a good word. Good word in general. Okay. I have a question that, has bothered me this entire time reading this novel that I've never thought of before. So I know we're at the end of time. And so if we can't cover it and get everybody's thoughts, I get that. But what's Bill, what's the point of Bill? Huh. That might be one to say for the Q&A episode, actually. Yeah, that's what I'm wondering. That is a, that is a good Q&A question. Somebody, put that in the, somebody just put that in the comments <laughs> thread on Facebook. <laughs> yeah. Somebody ask Heidi's question. Or Heidi, you can just ask the question. And we can say, so Heidi asks. And you know what you're going to do? You're going to call on me first. I know it. And because it's a real question. Hey, Heidi, what do you think? It's a real question that I want to hear y'all's thoughts on. So that's my closing thought. Well, that gives us a week to think about what the point of the bill was. (laughs) Um, Well, thanks for humoring my... my, uh, There's no humoring. My opposition opposition takes... (laughs) No, it's like really thoughtful. It was good, David. Yeah, now I'm. Yeah. Now I have another take on on this on on Hemingway. Now you can read the book again. Yeah, done with my theories in your brain. Maybe maybe you should maybe while drinking Chateau Margot. I will, yes, that is what I should do. I just have to talk to Scott <laughs> about that investment. <laughs> <laughs> investment. I, I like that yeah. reframe, Hardy. That it's is an investment. investment. In, in, if you bought a bottle of Chateau, Chateau Margaux right now from like, say, 2010, say, in like 10 years, you'd make bank on that. So have, it probably would be a good we do investment. Have boxes would be of, an investment. Something tells me that Heidi's less interested in investing in a bottle of Chateau Margaux. I am interested Margot in investing in my, in, my in Imago Day, which can be nourished <laughs> by the first... Yeah, it's just yeah. by the uh, sacramental the image of yes. yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. All right, guys. Well, I guess we should wrap this up. Tim, 
thanks for your thanks for your time, Heidi. Same to you. Uh, next week will be our Q and A episode. We will post the thread where you can post your questions uh, on Facebook, and you can also email them to us at closereadspodcast at gmail Our final crime and punishment episode for the uh, Patreon uh, bonus content is going up today or tomorrow. And then we're going to dive into the Lord of the Rings. So if you want to join us for those conversations, you can head over to patreon.com slash close reads and sign up there. Uh, the first episode, we're going to cover chapter one and unexpected party. The three of us will be there and then we'll explain a little bit about how we're going to approach that trilogy, that, that trilogy of long books. Uh, we'll give you some insight into what that's going to look like. Um, so that'll go up in a couple of weeks. Um, don't forget about the daily poem, the place, the thing, Heidi and Tim and Sarah Jane, you've been going through what, uh, the Merchant, Merchant of, of Venice, Venice and you've recorded two acts? We just finished act two yeah, okay. of Merchant of Venice. Act one is up, so you can go listen to that. Act two will go up later this week. So I guess what I'm trying to say is there's lots of content for you. And then finally, don't forget about uh, the newsletter. If you head over to closereads.substack.com, you can get access to that. And in the next week or so, I will be sending out reading schedules for our next book, which is Marilyn Robinson's Home, as well as The Lord of the Rings and any other news that needs to uh, get shared. So with with that, I guess that's about covers it. Unless Heidi or Tim, you want to pitch, and announce, furthermore, or... No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or no. otherwise, talk about some other thing. Nope. You good? Okay. Good. All right. Well, for Heidi White and for Tim McIntosh, I'm David Kern. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, happy reading. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.